Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me, makes me stronger. All right, Justin Perkins, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining. Thank you, Michael. I'm really pleased to be here. Justin, we've known each other for a number of years uh, through the entrepreneurial CPG community in the Denver Boulder area. And I was an investor of yours uh, for a period of time. Would love to just hear a little bit about your background, what you're doing now, and uh, what your mission is. Sure. Thanks, Michael. So I've had uh, the opportunity to work in about five different industries over my career, ranging from uh, state government and water resource management to the Department of Defense, uh, where I was uh, invited to write a book on decision-making for high-stakes situation and bring in a, a business lens to organizational development theory in, in uh, a think tank at the Department of Defense, which was super fascinating. Then went on to do business development for over a decade to help grow a startup um, that was a pioneer in the social good and um, you know the internet media space, a company called Care2, and um, helped close 800 deals for them and you know, 27 million in sales. And what a ride, you know, from before YouTube and Facebook to to now and uh, the, you know, the crazy political environment, et cetera. And then um, if that wasn't enough back um, after I started a bicycle rickshaw business on the side in Washington, DC, I dragged my family back to Boulder. I was newly married at the time and launched a nut company at the farmer's markets in Boulder and Denver that ultimately became Olamomo Nut Company, the company you invested in. And um, we had a pretty exciting ride for about 10 years with the CPG game and got pretty far, uh, almost to a million in sales. And then House of Cards fell down. So quite a journey that uh, ultimately led me now to working as an executive coach and helping high performers with big hearts looking to have impact through their work, entrepreneurs, as well as you know senior execs. And really love what I do, helping people with the inside game, if you will, the, the game of what happens in our minds, uh, and then how that gets applied in the world creatively through our relationships and our businesses and organizations that we touch. That's awesome. And your new firm is called New Edge Advisors, Edge as in competitive edge. Exactly. Yes. Awesome. Well, Justin, I was, I was excited about this show because it's uh, it's rare, I think, to be able to go do sort of a, a postmortem on uh, on a deal that didn't turn out the way that that people wanted to. And you know, you're you're sort of courageous and and open enough to being willing to to discuss that. I think one of the things that's can be difficult with our society and and with uh, the entrepreneurial pursuits in particular is we have such a sensitivity around talking through and being open about the things that don't work out. But those are usually where the the deepest lessons and learning opportunities are. 
So I think uh, I'd love to start this by just delving into Olomomo a little bit more. And maybe you could just start by expanding on the beginning of that story, how you got started, and what made you want to start a night company? Sure. It was uh, a really fun kind of connecting of dots. I was living in Washington, D.C. I'd always had two jobs, honestly, since I was about 18. And so I was looking around for a side hustle, basically. And there's a wonderful farmer's market in D.C. called Eastern Market. And I used to go there on the weekends. And there was a, a gentleman there who worked for the University of Maryland and had a nut company on the side. His wife loved to tinker in the kitchen and was, was a chef. And uh, he enjoyed being out at the markets on, on the weekend hawking nuts. Um, they had these you know, delicious flavors. I had an intern uh, at my, my company who worked for that guy on the weekends and would bring the nuts leftovers into the office. And they reminded me of some of the nuts I had tried uh, during ventures in Brazil and street vendors selling these really yummy candied nuts. Uh, you see them in New York City and, and uh, other places around the world, Germany. So um, I just started thinking about that. I was like, huh, I used to sell organic produce at the farmer's markets in Boulder. That was my first business. Started by my older brother, uh, Perkins Produce. Particular people prefer Perkins Produce. And, um, you know, we were a couple of Boulder, Boulder natives and part of that early wave of organic farming. And so I knew that farmer's market system really well. And putting two, two together, I was thinking this would be really cool to bring a a product like this that isn't in Colorado yet and uh, sell it at the markets. And sure enough, it was a hit. I mean, from day one, we were sold out. And um, so that was really as far as my vision went at that time. And I got really passionate, really excited about that. And then um, about a year into it, you know, it was so hard. And I had kind of dragged my wife into it, thinking that it would be a good, you know, sort of side hustle for her while she's going back to grad school that was not uh, her passion, uh, apparently. So after year one, it was just like, this is too much. It's too hard. And we, we were going to throw in the towel. You know, we were working five farmer's markets and I had a full-time job on top of that. And then we got pregnant. But being a curious, you know, MBA student and uh, having that entrepreneurial bug that I couldn't seem to shake. I had a, a father who was fairly entrepreneurial and part of a, a company back in the 80s that did books on tape for business executives. It's called News Track. And it was, you know, cutting edge at the time, direct mail, uh, sending out cassette tapes. And so I grew up around some of that entrepreneurial lore, you know, and my dad would be reading books by Tom Peters and Peter Drucker and some of the, you know, business executive classics. Mo Siegel, the legend has it, used to ride his bike to work in the early days of celestial seasonings and listen to my dad reading business books. <laughs> That's great. Um, and, uh, and then on top of that, my grandfather, my great grandfather actually had a pickle company in Denver called Perkins pickles. And there was a, uh, you know, family lore that some great, great, great grandfather invented the typewriter. And so we can blame him for ASDF QWERTY keyboards. <laughs> um, they were actually designed to slow the typing down because the old typewriters would jam when the secretaries would type too fast. Interesting. So, uh, and then there was barbed wire back in the day. Same, I think the same inventor who was this patent lawyer back in the 1800s um, 
a guy named Carlos Glidden. So I grew up with those stories and that lore. And um, on top of it, just sort of, you know, really supportive parents who supported my creativity. And so there wasn't a lot of, you can't do that. It was more like, how do you do that? So tying all that together, it was just obvious that nuts needed to be in Colorado at farmer's markets. What first made you think I need to go raise money? So the farmer's market era, okay, so end of year one, we're done, we're thrown in the towel. I made the beautiful mistake of throwing my hat in the ring at the Naturally Boulder Pitch Slam. And this was early days. This was circa 2008, I believe. Pitch slams um, uh, can be heady experiences. Yeah. And this, I mean, this is pretty early in the pitch slam thing. Like there weren't that many at this point. So just on a lark, you know, I wrote down a little pitch and we only had 30 seconds. I mean, it was, you know, kind of silly, but uh, I threw my hat in and got into the final round and people came out of the woodwork to help. It was really interesting. And I'm like, gosh, I think I'm onto something here. And so it was, you know, some of the, the, the classic CPG people like Doug Rady and TJ McIntyre and Liz Meislick and Hassan And, you know, these people came up to me and they're like, you're onto a really good idea here, man. And uh, fix the packaging and, you know, the branding could be better. And so I, I just, I mean, I lit up and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And um, then I entered a business plan con- contest at CU Denver, which is where I did my MBA wrote that sucker in a day, the day before my daughter was born. And I will forever be sorry to my wife for like disappearing that day. <laughs> but um, we won. And, you know, we beat out the guy with the life-saving like invention that would help people with, you know, lung replacement. <laughs> sorry. But, uh, you know, then, then the fire was lit and there was kind of no looking back at that point. And uh, so then it was just... I couldn't stop thinking about it. And, and we started distributing in coffee shops and then uh, it snowballed from there. So then what happened was, you know, we were, we were kind of just tooling around at the farmer's market for four years while I had this idea growing. But basically the brand grew bigger than the sales locally. And then that started to attract attention. And uh, uh, a guy who you and I know well, Ross Shell, came out of the ecosystem there and uh, following another Naturally Boulder pitch slam, which um, I also got into the runner-up phase. He approached me afterwards and we started to talk and, and he was the first one to stick his neck out and say, hey, I think I'd like to invest in you and invest in this business. Um, so that that's where it started to get real. Very cool. And this was around the time when uh, Circle Up was just kind of coming out as well, if I recall correctly. And the idea of equity crowdfunding was just coming to the fore as well. And that's that's uh, that's a train that you hopped on, if I recall. That was a fascinating experience because a lot of this technology was new. And Kickstarter had already been around for a couple of years. So the Circle Up folks were seeing if they could pull that off with this other community. And I don't remember how we got into that conversation. And I'm just trying to remember the details. I think it was our second round. And we had a handful of angels at that point. And, you know, at this point, I had never raised capital. I had no idea how all of those things came together, you know, with cash, cash flow, let alone CPG. I mean, it was a completely new industry to me. and had pulled in a business partner, knew a lot more about the industry than me, uh, you know, a wonderful guy named Mark Owens. And, um, you know, we had no idea how fast we'd run out of cash after that initial investment. It was crazy. So, you know, it was like from that moment. What was the initial investment? I think it was maybe 
maybe 150 K um, okay. from how many people? Just a couple. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think it might even be less than that. I think it might've been like 50 or 75 K and you know, okay. that vaporized in like no time. <laughs> so then it was basically hand to mouth for four years of nonstop fundraising. Had no idea I was going to get sucked into that. I thought I was kind of done at that point and had brought in a CEO. So, you know, so I could kind of go focus on my family and my day job, but uh, had no idea what that entailed, what was in, in store for me. So I think round two was circle up. Um, we had a couple of investors in that round and we were the first company under half a million in sales on circle up. So circle up got involved uh, as an experiment. And so they you know, kind of gave us that poster child status, which made a huge difference because we got, you know, the nature of those platforms is you kind of have to bring your own energy and your own audience. It's not field of dreams typically, unless YouTube or, you know, in this case, Circle Up puts you on the homepage and actually promotes you. So we got that lucky status. And as a result, we got a lot of great attention And it was a fascinating experience. We got some incredible investors through that that we never would have met otherwise, uh, including one guy who became, you know, kind of a saving grace and and ultimately stabilized the business on multiple occasions. And then that exposure actually gave me enough visibility and credibility to when I reached out to Brad Feld on a lark. I sent him an email randomly and I said, saw you went bananas, which is another company he invested in. Do you want to go nuts too? And, you know, wrote him a funny email, like, I know you and your dad like my nuts. And it just would be a shame if you didn't have a chance, you know, and Brad is such a mensch. And oh, my God, like, you know, what an incredible philosophy of investing he has. And 24 hours later, I had $25,000 in my bank account, could not believe it. And that tipped the deal on Circle Up. And once he was in and we had that, you know, anchor of credibility, then um, close the rest of that round. Um, you know, a lot of it old school relationships, but that that sort of led to all those things coming together led to us closing that round. Interestingly, we tried to raise, again, a convertible note on Circle Up maybe a year later. And I don't know what changed, but we got one single investor out of probably 200 sample kits that we sent out and a lot of looky-loos. And uh, it was really challenging. Um, so that's a whole rabbit hole, but you know, what a, what a fascinating era of experimentation to have lived through. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting when, when circle up first launched, I think that there was this sense of a uh, bit of a gold rush where people were, were rushing on there with their checkbooks. And I think a lot of businesses got, got funded with a lot of small checks and then they, you know, there, there started to be a lot more brands on there and I think the quality of the opportunities really got watered down. And I think that that probably led Circle Up to, to pivoting into, into what they are today, uh, yeah. where you know, they seem much more oriented around uh, doing their own deals or you know, offering diversified uh, investment opportunities. Yeah. And I think, I mean, what it revealed to me, just having an understanding of how networks work, I mean, that was kind of the part of the research I did at the Department of Defense and then working with Care2, which was you know a pioneer in a lot of ways around how to mobilize online communities. And what was missing is that investing is so intimate, you know, especially when you're dealing with larger amounts of money. And so there was kind of a key assumption flaw, I think, in the whole system to where, you know, at the end of the day, the relationships really mattered. 
and so this could facilitate and streamline the connection into other networks. But at the end of the day, I found it was still, you know, the personal conversation, the trust, and that investor taking a leap and believing in the entrepreneur. And that's really intimate. And it just was, it just got too, too diluted too fast in both directions, I, I would suspect. Yeah. Well, I think at that stage, people are really investing in you. Yeah. So that's, that's an interesting dynamic to have where you're the founder, but not necessarily maybe the day-to-day operator. You bring in a day-to-day operator, but it sounds like ultimately you were really the one doing the fundraising and you were the one people were investing in. Is that, is that fair to say? Um, I think it was what I tried to do. And, and I would say that's probably fair to say is the net net of, you know, what happened. It probably varied depending on who it was investing, but, uh, it was an interesting dynamic because, you know, I was not in a financial position with a new family and, you know, and frankly, an awesome day job that would have been by a lot of counts relatively foolish to just, you know, let go and go pay myself nothing because <laughs> it's just CPG is so hard. The metrics just don't work like tech, as you know, at that point in time, we were way undercapitalized for what we were trying to do. And yet, there weren't a lot of options other than, you know, bootstrapping or angel investing. Like there were only maybe one or two VC funds at that point, And they were only investing in 10 million plus companies like Greenmont were, you know, it was kind of the only one. So we were just before that wave of some of the earlier stage VC funds popping up. And then we kind of just missed that wave in terms of timing to have enough momentum to attract um, a Series A. So we got caught in that no man's land of an endless chasing of angels and never mobilized more than like, <laughs> it was like an average of 25K at a time. Not recommended. <laughs> but also really fun. You know, it was like one of the coolest games I've ever played. And I learned so much from that. But yeah, I tried to do that with a day job. And the number one question I used to get was, how do you, how do you pull that off? And how did you do that? And well, I, I really did try to build an awesome team. And I think I did and uh, learn a lot through that. And everybody has their strengths. And uh, Mark was an awesome operator. And um, I just was better at sales and fundraising. It's just so so I was like, well, this makes a lot more sense for me to focus on this. And I like it. And, and so that's how it shook out. And Justin, maybe for, for people who are less familiar with the industry, what about it makes it so necessary to take that outside capital to start growing a business like Olomomo that where you're trying to grow, you know, store to store, chain to chain. Yeah. So it is really capital intensive, you know, compared to say tech where you're moving ones and zeros or, you know, or, or consumer bases and things like that. So in our case, we were physically manufacturing the product. So you have all the costs of goods associated with that. I mean, you have to buy a lot, you have to front a lot of capital to be able to buy the nuts and the sugar and the spices and you know pay for the manufacturing process and employees and all those things. And then with CPG, once you get into distribution, and keep in mind at this point, circa 2013, the whole idea of selling direct to consumer was, you know, that was still a pipe dream. And so I was doing that a little bit as like a gift business in the holidays. And that's where the margins are good. But when you get into distribution, all of a sudden you're hammered with so many costs. So you have to have a really strong cash position to be able to fund the working capital to be able to buy all the product and and actually make the product. And then float 
often 90 days where you don't get paid because of the middlemen, you know, the distributors and, and, and ultimately the retailers that are between you and the, the ultimate uh, consumers or the customers buying the product. And then on top of that, it's ultimately you're, you know, it's similar to a two-sided marketplace where you need to invest in building the brand to create demand for the product. So that requires budget to do it right. Um, and then at the same time, you're also selling into the trade. So the buyers, you know, both distributors, brokers, and retailers. And that's a whole system that's not cheap. And then, you know, of course, paying salaries and all that. So, you know, you have to mobilize enough capital to run that gauntlet. And ultimately, you're probably displacing somebody on a shelf. I mean, you're probably literally kicking somebody else, some other product off the shelf, and then having to fight to stay there. So it's a fascinating game. And, um, but it just, it just requires proper capital. And so we did it the hardest way possible. Justin, I remember in particular, it, it seemed like Olomoma was in this cycle of, uh, to your point, constantly raising money and then needing that money essentially to finance your next round of production and then spending that money, being in that gap, gap waiting for the AR to come back and really needing to essentially go raise money again. Yeah. Looking back, how would you think about avoiding that kind of cycle because it's i think it's easy for consumer businesses in particular to get trapped in something like that and it's why you know profitable ones often get inventory financing or or other types of uh, financing which can be much much more difficult for smaller non-profitable brands to get but how would you think about avoiding something like that for for maybe an entrepreneur who's in a similar situation now yeah i think keep in mind that some of the resources available now weren't there when we did this. Sure. And so, you know, what's really interesting is uh, having kind of swapped stories with people like Justin Gold, who, you know, the, the, the origins were not dissimilar. And, and I think, I don't know the details, but I- Justin yeah, Gold of Justin's Nut Butter. Justin's Nut Butter, right? And, you know, he started a couple of years before I did, but also had something on the order of, you know, 50 angel investors. And, you know, he had a similar cap table. But um, there was sort of a different perfect storm that came together for him, which if I remember correctly, he had a couple of angel investors that, you know, were really excited about then putting in over a million dollars. So that really helped with that, that next phase. And that got him ultimately to, you know, uh, an investment from VNG and ultimately a fantastic exit. But it's amazing just how, you know, a lot of the similar dynamics were there in that early phase, but just how that, that one check of getting enough capital up front could make such a huge difference. So we got stuck into that spiral and we did everything, inventory financing, credit cards, you know, nonstop fundraising, convertible notes. We tried it all. And, and at a certain point, it's like you need that bigger check to then go to that next level. So to answer your question... Nowadays, I think there's a wonderful opportunity and more and more brands are taking this pathway to build demand and build the brand online where the margins are hypothetically better, Amazon and direct to consumer. Um, so a great example of that is a brand called Wild Zora. And you know, you probably know of a, a dozen others that are, are running this new playbook. You know, you sort of prove the concept on, online more efficiently. You don't, it's not as capital intensive. You can do, you know, 
better management of inventory. You don't have products sitting on the shelf uh, going bad and, and the slotting fees that you have with major retailers, et cetera. So I think there's a wonderful opportunity for products that make sense, you know, typically shelf stable, but not always. Some of the beverage companies are running this too. And then backfill with uh, retail once you've kind of established uh, positive cash flow and, you know, really positive consumer story, you understand who your customers are, and then you go back and then go back to retail with a much stronger position and probably less reliance upon the investing dynamic that you need to, to scale. Um, there's a great example of a company called Rip Van Waffles that recently stabilized their company in the middle of COVID and they lost all their food service distribution, which means, you know, selling to the Google campuses and college campuses and places that have cafes and cafeterias and coffee shops and things. Because of COVID, that went away overnight. That was most of their business. And then they've been able to very quickly stabilize the business through online. And now they're going back and, and filling in retail distribution uh, from a much stronger financial position. So that would be my recommendation for, for companies now is either raise a lot of capital up front if you can through you know friends and family or angels. If you have a big enough idea, a big enough white space, a big enough market, or take it more conservatively and, and use some of the direct to consumer channels to prove the concept before you end up over your skis. So uh, as you guys were growing the business, how did you think about the possibility of chasing after positive cash flow versus top line sales goals? What if any uh, relationship was there and, and how are you valuing those potential goals? Yeah. So we were pretty intentionally running a grow the top line strategy, which at the time was not uncommon. We'd seen other brands get away with that. And, you know, Izzy did that. And we heard those stories. Justin's probably did that. I don't, don't know the details, but that's what I've heard. So it wasn't uncommon. And, you know, that's kind of what a lot of tech companies do as well. So that, that was our strategy. And then we actually ended up and we did run out of cash and hit that ceiling and couldn't find the VC capital to get to that next level. Um, we did actually try to retrench for a year and get the, the company cash flow positive. We almost did it, honestly. And um, I'll, I'll never forget after taking one more bite at the apple with my own personal credit cards, you know, at the end of, I think it was 2018, I was like, okay, we had this incredible account with the military and I had, uh, you know, enough credit on one of my personal cards for, you know, $8,000 line of credit to buy product to fund this pretty significant purchase order. And for whatever reason, I don't know if, you know, I don't know if we missed it or they didn't tell us about it. We got slapped with a $7,000 chargeback Oof. and that was it. Brutal. Yeah, <laughs> that was, that was all of our profit, uh, gone. And, and then, you know, that was, that was a, that was a real reality check moment where I didn't stop for a while. Cause I kept trying to find a way to pivot and, and you know, I kept trying to sell. I kept trying to do whatever I could, but I'll never forget, you know, at a certain point I was willing to jump back in and, you know, almost do it myself and Doug Rady, who's just a hell of a guy, one of my board members. And um, he's like, you know, Justin, you could go do that again, but then what? 
and it was, it was Mike yeah. and I'm like, it was that moment pretty much on a Friday afternoon that I finally let it go. So Justin, if somebody came to you with that fact pattern today in your coaching practice, what's your advice to them? I've got $8,000 of credit left on my personal card. Go, go make a run of it with my, uh, with my business. Don't do it, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, so I think it's, you know, it's obviously a totally situational question. I mean, there are times where that totally makes sense. And, um, and and you and I talked about this a little bit earlier where, um, what happens when you're in that cycle is really fascinating as a human. I was experiencing so much pressure that your thinking changes. You see things not as they are, but you go back and forth between wish thinking, if you will, and often dark, dark holes. And yeah. it's a wild ride. And yeah. meantime, reality's happening. And uh, it's really challenging to navigate all of that, um, especially when you're telling yourself stories or you have these loops and honor codes that you're trying to live by. Like, for example, you got mom's voice in the back of your head saying, uh, never get into debt. And then, you know, you've got somewhere I picked up this notion that I was going to be damned if I lost anybody else's money. And, you know, so that was driving the show yeah. and, and sort of this, like, you think that, you know, when you grow up being successful in a lot of different areas, you kind of develop this attitude of, I don't know, you, I had this notion that it would all work out. And mm-hmm. because I pulled so many rabbits out of hat fundraising, and sneaked by so many times where we were out of cash. I mean, probably a dozen times where it was dire. And somehow I found a way through. I just thought that would keep happening. Yeah. And then one day, and that is a fascinating experience, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I asked because, you know, I have been there before, but it just, it's such an interesting dynamic where you think about the decisions you make in that, in that point in time when you're so emotionally connected to the outcome and your personal ego and sense of self is tied up with making it happen. And in, in hindsight, you can look back at that and say, gosh, that, that risk was not, was not worth it at all, or that was not an objective or rational way to, to evaluate the situation. But it just, it seems like the thing that you have to do in that moment of time. And it's what everyone's expecting of you, right? Yeah, I think that's spot on. And I think this happens probably for a lot of entrepreneurs in particular. I think it attracts a lot of creative people who, you know, have that ability to almost suspend reality in, in certain ways. And I think you need to have that as an entrepreneur, actually, to be able to have the vision to look forward However, that can be weaponized against you. You can weaponize it against yourself when you buy your own story too much and drink yeah. your own Kool-Aid. So I think it's the, your identity gets tied into that. That's where it gets dangerous. And, and I, I think one of the things that, cause I saw that break, I got to the end of that road and watched that identity just completely shatter. That was probably the biggest gift for me was for that to happen. Because I realized that what was below that is so much richer and so much more fulfilling. And that, you know what? It's really funny, but I don't even, I don't even necessarily feel the emotions anymore a couple of years out of that. Like it's, you know, it's almost like this weird movie in in the background. It's like the the bad breakup, right? Where you know it's devastating in the time. And then a couple of years later, you're like, how did I even feel anything for that person? It's it's really bizarre. But the other thing I noticed was that 
you know, with the exception of one or two investors that were pretty bent about the experience, I got love letters from just some, you know, incredible people like Joel Solomon. I don't know if you know Joel, but he's, he's a pioneer in the food industry. And I mean, I just was blown away by the kindness. Absolutely. I think ultimately people who invest for a living, especially in startups, they appreciate the risk that they're taking. Yeah. And I think that's the reality with, with professional investors is if you're investing in these risky assets, you understand what might happen. In fact, what might be very likely to happen. And you're, you're investing in the person. And sometimes you're still believing in that person, even if, even if the venture itself doesn't work out. Because ultimately, not every venture is going to work out. So I think, A, it's, you know, it's, it's a testament to, to you, your will, your drive that you would get letters like that. But B, I think you know, the vast majority of people who are investing in these types of relatively risky ventures, uh, they understand what the risks are. For the most part, in my experience, as long as you are honest and transparent and do your best not to surprise people, they understand how this goes. Yeah, I would agree with that. I found that too. And I, I wish I had known that earlier because it, it's a paradox, but I think I would have actually made better decisions had I known that than if I had put so much pressure on myself that had this almost opposite effect of then making choices that in, you know, in a calmer state of mind, I might not have made. I might have actually come up with more creative uh, common sense choices that could have avoided some of those those patterns that happened. So it's an interesting dynamic. And that's actually what I coach people around now is like understanding how that comes together as a human being and how much pressure is an inside job. And that learning from that experience was just priceless. And it's helped me navigate some really intense conversations with clients, like a, you know, a friend of mine who got laid off right after COVID. And uh, on top of that, had a really challenging situation with his marriage and you know, six months later, after we, we navigated that together, because I had gone through that crucible, I was able to be rock solid for him and point to what was causing the stress in his situation. And as a result of that, he really settled down and came up with some, you know, very common sense, practical moves that really righted his ship and got him back in the game and just talked to him last night. And, you know, he's, he's really enjoying his life and has a new uh, partner in his life who really adores him. And I mean, it's just, it's just so amazing how we torture ourselves unnecessarily, especially as entrepreneurs. And it's a, it's a paradox because we actually perform better when we're relaxed, calmed down and not spun up. Totally. And is that, is that Carver who you wrote about in, in that, that great piece uh, that you shared with me? Yeah. Yep. That's uh that's uh, Carver, a uh, fake name to protect yeah, his identity. Pseudonym, yeah. But, uh, yep. Yeah, hell of a guy. And uh, that to me is just so helpful, what I've learned. I'm talking about investors and you know people who really understand that game, you know, I would say most of the angels I had out of those 50 people were just awesome, awesome, awesome people. I think all of them were awesome. And I think you know, there was only one that got really mad at me. But um, one of the guys that you know I will forever be grateful to is a man named Jason Burv. He was actually the founder of the Watershed School in Boulder. So he was an entrepreneur in the education space. And Jason was the one guy on the second round on CircleUp who uh, invested in Olamoma, which was kind of fascinating how that came together. And here's why. Out of sending out investor updates, letting people know things weren't going well, 
Jason writes me back and says, hey, man, I know a thing or two about stress. Would you like to talk? And I had uh, been, I knew I needed new information. And this Einstein quote kind of saved me, you know, the, the one where it says, you know, the, the same level of thinking that got you there won't get you out. <laughs> um, I'm paraphrasing. So I was already kind of open for new information because I knew I was just, I was over my head. I had no idea what to do. It was the hardest challenge, complex set of relationships, worst I've ever felt in my life, et cetera. So Jason reaches out and says, you know, I'd like to talk, happy to listen. I didn't really know him very well, but, um, you know, learned about this whole coaching thing, which I kind of used to poo-poo. You know, I had that stupid adage in my head of those who can do, those who can't teach, which it's one of those things I picked up and it's just ridiculous. So I you know had, had tried a little bit of traditional therapy and, you know, it was helpful to a point. And uh, I just found that, you know, after six sessions of talking to this guy, Jason, I felt better. And, you know, I could just feel my natural resilience coming back to the surface. My common sense was coming back to the surface. Um, I was enjoying my relationships better. I was, you know, slowing down. And it took a while, but, you know, Jason introduced me to, or I should say reintroduced me to the notion of coaching. And then it was really cool. One day I woke up and I was like, tell me about this coaching thing, Jason. And he said, funny you ask. My wife just canceled on going to this workshop um, up in Seattle. And do you want to go? It was a coaching workshop. And uh, it was led by this incredible guy named George Pransky, who's this uh, real pioneer in this new paradigm of psychology. And uh, I watched him work with a client on stage. And this, this gentleman who had been a chiropractor and hurt somebody really badly by mistake and lost his license for seven years and watched him viscerally shift in his chair through a normal conversation with this guy, George, and saw him have a visceral insight and actually relax to where I could tell that he felt free of that guilt that he had punished himself with for so many years. And I could really relate to that. So I remember walking into the other room of this hotel, this little hotel in uh, near Seattle in this little town called LaConnor, and I had the most beautiful experience of almost like the paintings on the wall looked different. And, it, you know, it was kind of like being on psychedelics or something. And it was just the most beautiful experience I'd had uh, to that point. And I was listening to this violin concerto that my wife had texted to me and just totally blissed out. And it was just felt like for the first time in my life, I had actually witnessed wisdom and seeing the possibility of how powerful we are as human beings. And finally kind of had an interesting way to support people and really help people find their true power, uh, for lack of better words. So there was this really incredible moment. And then it's just been this rocket ride ever since then of, of learning curve. And uh, I, I just am so grateful. I mean, and that wouldn't happen without the Olomomo crash. That's awesome. And it's, uh, it's, it's always great to hear how, you know, the, the stressful times, the hard times lead to the elevated times later on. I want to go back to, to the crash part of Olomomo, just so we can kind of get to the end of that story. Cause I think it's really interesting. And I know towards, towards the end, you and I had a conversation and, and we looked at, uh, at potentially basically buying, you know, recapping the business 
I think it's it's uh, it's always like the interesting but rare opportunity to go back and sort of uh, have those conversations a few years later. Do you want to just sort of set the stage for what was going on when we when we entered into those conversations? Yeah, and I, I'm going to forget the timelines, but we were doing pretty well in terms of distribution. I think we had about three thousand points of distribution. You know, some pretty major retailers, and there were a lot of you know, good possibility for the business. So there was good momentum. We were just out of cash or, you know, struggling to kind of squeak by. And so we were looking for that next round of investment. And um, I remember in that conversation, I mean, you, you threw us a lifeline in retrospect. And at the time, it was a really challenging decision because I'm, I'm in kind of manifest destiny headset, head mindset, like, you know, we can do it. <laughs> And, and at the same time, I'm trying to balance advice from, you know, well-intending board members who are just, you know, amazing people and really smart. And I'm trusting their judgment as experts. And then I have this, this other duty to shareholders and trying to navigate all of that. And, you know, ultimately probably had an inflated value of what we had, you know, to be fair, probably in comparison to your your more objective valuation of the situation as an outsider. So really, really challenging decision and dynamic to navigate. And so, uh, so it's, I mean, what a cool opportunity to, to talk about this with you and, and kind of have both perspectives on, on either side of the table. But, um, you know, we had 50 people on the cap table, you know, no cash, a lot of sales. We didn't have trouble selling, but we had challenge getting the, the working capital going. So in retrospect, you know, uh, as I told you earlier, probably should have taken that deal. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I would have ended up in a better spot, you know, but, um, and my investors probably would have been no worse for wear with the outcome, you know, versus nothing. So really, really fascinating dynamic. And um, I think, you know, for entrepreneurs in in that situation, I think it's helpful to, to realize like objectively where you are and, and the other adage I'd always hear was take the cash, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, had I done that, I, I would have been in a personal situation that would have been a lot healthier. As I shared with you earlier, I, I just finally paid off the credit card debt last weekend, uh, you know, a couple years later wow. after getting caught holding the bag. I didn't know this. And this is also another good tip. If your business is under 2 million in sales, the fine print on major bank credit cards basically says, you know, you have a personal guarantee on that debt. Yeah. So I, I was the lucky, I was the lucky one who, uh, who started it and got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As unfortunately the way it works. Um, it works. But- and you know, I, I bring it up not to say like who was right or who was wrong. Cause, cause who knows, but, uh, I think it's, it's interesting to look at those situations because so many entrepreneurs get into that mindset of, oh, my company is worth X. And a lot of, um, there's plenty of sort of advisors, uh, lawyers, et cetera, that say, well, no, 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 everyone else is raising at this type of multiple. And this is what you should expect. And so a lot of people, I think, operate on that assumption, but the marketplace doesn't always sort of support that. And so there's, I think a lot of times people are going in with this expectation based off of maybe other use cases or other experiences or what other people are telling them, but the marketplace realities aren't backing that up. And so there's this gap between the two. And I think that's where a lot of companies can, can sort of fall through those cracks. And it's, it's interesting because 
objectively you can you could look at it and in this situation you know we, we kind of looked and said wow man we love the brand we love what justin's built but they they've been super cash strapped for a while haven't been able to support the the, the distribution that they do have concerned that that could go away relatively easily and you know we're worried that we're catching a falling knife here and uh and a super complicated cap table so you know sort of under it that offer with okay well this is our risk appetite here right and it's you, you come to the table and people say oh you know are you crazy no way it's worth several times that and i think that's it's always interesting when two different groups of smart capable experienced people can can go look at something and say you know it's worth something totally different but ultimately it's i always love that adage of uh the markets can stay irrational for longer than you can stay solvent. Um, <laughs> it's it's not totally the same here, but it's it's similar in the standpoint of like if you are underwriting something, and the marketplace is not on the same page with you, then you can protect what you're doing from market realities for a certain period of time, but not too many people can do that indefinitely, right? Yeah, and so that's. That's, I think, where I feel like I, I'm always trying to figure out how do you maintain objectivity when you're also operating and you know emotionally tied into what you're doing? I think part of it is really trying to divorce yourself from ego as much as possible as you're navigating these things. But to some extent, it's just really hard when you're, when you're pouring your blood, sweat, and tears into something and it's not it's either not worth what you think it is or it's not going the way that you want it to go so figuring out a way to kind of go back to that zero basis thinking or looking at something with new eyes or reevaluating it I, i'm so curious in your coaching practice like how do you help people navigate something like that that's such a great segue because it's that right there i think is the biggest lever the biggest unknown lever that we have as human beings is understanding that dynamic and being able to actually see what's real and what's being generated by a story. And so a lot of the work I do with with clients, especially with entrepreneurs, because we're so susceptible to that particular trap, is to help teach people about how the mind works in essentially creating our experience of consciousness. And then we actually feel that emotional connection to our thought. It's not the other way around. And so we literally feel our thinking in the moment. And rather than looking at emotions as a reaction to an external circumstance, what I've discovered, I didn't discover this, but what I've learned is our emotions are actually just a dashboard that give us insight into the quality of our thinking moment to moment, not about the information or the content. And so in other words, had I known that when I was having anxiety attacks and eventually I got out of the anxiety attacks with this information, I would not have been as afraid as I was. Just to give you an example, I was at one point in Austria and you know the situation in Olamomo had not resolved yet. I had you know been able to carve a vacation for my family because I was you know, trying to keep things balanced and be a good dad. And, and I get a text message when I'm walking out of a beautiful, you know, top of a chairlift in Imst, Austria, middle of the Alps, looked like a scene from the movie Heidi. And text message comes in and it's regarding this investor who's mad at me. And my adrenaline shot through the roof. And all of a sudden I'm in this like completely toxic reality in my body. 
But the advantage was I knew what was happening. I knew there was no way, there was nothing physically happening that could make me feel that bad. It was just a function of my thought of my thought in the moment and a memory that was generating this bad feeling. And uh, I hopped on this uh, Alpine roller coaster with my daughter and we rode down to the bottom. And by the time I was at the bottom of the roller coaster, um, I knew that the half-life of adrenaline is only a few minutes. And I knew if I didn't do anything, just kind of watched it and observed it, that I would settle back down to neutral. And eventually I did and kind of got back in the game. So that's, that's what I'm talking about is that we, you know, we tend to, as a culture and a society, we focus on the problem or the bad feeling as a problem. And that actually has the reverse effect. It blows it up into a thing. Totally. And it's, it's kind of like picking a scab, you know, like if you leave a scab alone, it'll heal. So that's the, that's the type of thing that I kind of foundationally help people understand better. And then once that clicks, like with Carver, once he saw that he was creating any bad feelings that he was having, then he was free. Yeah. And then from there, he was able to get back into creative mode again and lean forward into creating a future that was more ideal for him. Yeah. So. So that's kind of the yeah the essence of it. Yeah, that's great. And ultimately, with Olomomo, you were able to find a, a really cool sort of final solution there. Do you mind do you mind sharing what that is? Yeah, I'm I'm still hopeful. So um, what happened was through uh, a connection with a local nonprofit in Boulder, we were able to actually donate the assets to them. And so I wanted to do something with it and try to give it a, a way forward. And nobody wanted to buy it. I mean, I'd spent a year trying to sell it, and um, so we uh, the CEO of this organization at the time was open to acquiring the assets and they had a return to work program for homeless people to help with job training. And there was a commercial kitchen in Boulder. And um, so it was looking really good for that to be sort of a way forward. And then COVID happened. The CEO who was kind of teed that up left. And so I'm, I'm not optimistic that that's going to happen now. Gotcha. Okay. But it was an interesting solution that as kind of a, a last ditch effort to exit, technically it was kind of cool because it, it, it enabled us to sort of deal with the assets in a, in a creative way and mm-hmm. simplify a lot of the, a lot of the cleanup that you would have to do with like selling stuff off and, and all that. So it was an interesting solution. I wish it had worked and, but Olomomo lives on. I have a bag full of really sweet hats <laughs> and, um, it, they say, uh, you know, Olomomo, it's got the monkey god of adventure logo. And it says, savor the adventure as our tagline. And so I gift those to all of my coaching clients as a, uh, a nice metaphor for, for what life's about. That's great. Well, I mean, anyone who's sort of had any level of entrepreneurial experience, I think can just have so much empathy for that, for that story. But what's beautiful about it, and, and I think it's a reality of life, is that those, those tough journeys are the ones that empower us for, for future success. And it sounds like you're just doing such uh, such powerful work with new, new edge advisors. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. And I, this is, this is actually the podcast that I would have launched. And so I'm really uh, glad you're doing this. I think it's a very important conversation and I hope that, you know, we can kind of demystify some of the, the journey and, and help entrepreneurs actually make better choices earlier too, you know, without some of those, stories that we make up, you know, including down to practical things like, you know, listening to the wrong advice or surrounding yourself with people that don't actually have experience in 
some of the challenges that you're facing or, you know, not trusting your own wisdom or your own instincts. That was one of the biggest lessons I had from that was there were times where I would defer to people I thought were smarter than I was instead of trusting that intuition or that gut feeling that I had or a creative idea I had. So there's nothing like entrepreneurship to reveal, you know, the best and worst of who you are. And uh, so I'm really, really grateful you're doing this podcast because I think it's such a, an important conversation to help uh, people like me who've gone through it and, you know, had the pancake face plant experience. But I also think, you know, there are a lot of people who, who have the opposite experience, but then they realize, you know, money and that identity and, and the, you know, sometimes the fame that comes with that uh, is also kind of empty. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I hope, I hope people hear from this that what's, what's really real is the, the creative journey, the experience of growth as a human being, the relationships you develop, you know, because all this other stuff is pretty temporary and, and ultimately ends even if you knock it out of the park. Absolutely. Well, and I, I think, you know, even people uh, have the success, right? It's, it's easy to confuse luck with skill, or at, at the very least, the, the element that luck plays in so many of those journeys. And so I think quite often, the failures at some point can can inform a, a much more secure uh, system or method of operating. There's a, a great book called uh, What I Learned Losing a Million Dollars by Jim Paul <laughs> um, that I, I can't Ouch. recommend enough. But uh, in it, he, he talks about being a trader and he you know, thought he was a hot shot on the board of the uh, Chicago commodities trade. And um, he lost big and realized that it wasn't necessarily that he was good. He was bright and motivated and and got pretty lucky for a while and realized that uh, you know that was that was a big part of it. And so the the book, which I can't recommend enough, is is him trying to investigate what can he learn from the loss. And as he looks around at other successful people, he realizes everyone's giving him conflicting advice. So he says, "Well, I've got to go to <laughs> where people have lost a lot and go and go learn." You know, everyone can tell you what what to do to go make a million dollars. But what's actually more interesting is to figure out what not to do to avoid losing a million dollars. And so that's that's kind of the thesis of the book, uh, which I think is just so interesting. And the risk of uh, over-referencing books makes me think of Coelho's The the Alchemist, you know, where uh, the boy has to uh, get beaten uh, to within an inch of his life, you know, right there at the end where he thinks he's, he's going to win out and uh, thinks it's all done before finding his treasure, essentially. So I think that that's, it's just such a powerful metaphor for the entrepreneurial experience, but then also life in general. Yeah, I mean, you know, I share an interest in uh, mythology and the, uh, the book Sapiens that you had actually recommended to me a couple of years ago. And to me, it's amazing that any of this works. Now, you know, understanding what I've seen on five different industries and just you know, the, the full spectrum of competence to incompetence to, you know, the human condition to, you know, politics, all of it. It's just amazing. It all works and, and how it's held together by essentially shared stories and myth. And so I think what's really cool about the entrepreneurial journey is that it is, it's an accelerated version of the human experience, the hero's journey. And, you know, nothing like it to sort of give you exposure into what you're made of and who you are. And uh, so it's such a cool conversation. And, um, you know, I just feel so lucky to have found a lot of people who were supportive in that and then also come out the other end and still be okay and not, you know, 
completely wrapped around the axle or depressed or anything like that. And, um, so I just am, uh, you know, over the moon grateful for the, the profession I found because of that journey and, uh, really love supporting people, uh, to help avoid the mistakes, but also to, uh, you know, realize their dreams, uh, more effectively. Absolutely. Well, I, uh, I love it. Love the adaptability and, and the evolution. And Justin, I just uh, so appreciate you uh, coming on and, and sharing your story and being willing to be uh, uh, vulnerable and doing the good work that you do today. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. Great. Grateful for the opportunity. Justin, if people want to find you, reach out to you, uh, what's the best way to do that? Sure. Uh, thank you. My website is New Edge Advisors, edge as in edge of a cliff. And uh, Justin at newedgeadvisors.com is probably the best mode. And I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook. Awesome. Well, please uh, hope everybody who listens to this reaches out to Justin. And uh, Justin, just thank you again for, uh, for joining today. This has been great. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. All right. Take care. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com, and you can follow along at whatdidn'tkillyou on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path, and I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.